Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you today for the Holy Sabbath. And Lord, not just any Sabbath, but a Sabbath where we have the emblems of reminder of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us so long ago. And even now stands interceding for us by virtue of that sacrifice in the temple in heaven. And we rejoice in that this morning, and we just ask, Father, that the Spirit of God would enlighten our understanding to help us to sense a little bit more of the significance of the wonderful plan of salvation wrought out through your Son, Jesus. We ask and pray these things in his name. Amen. We're in Luke chapter 22 and verse 14, and the Bible says here, when the hour had come, he, that is Jesus, sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, if you're looking at it in the King James, New King James Version, rather, what does uh, the word fervent look like? should be italicized. It's a supplied word. In, in, in What it would say literally in the Greek is, with desire I have desired to do this. has that word for desire twice. And the point is that Jesus is heavily burdened in his heart. He, he so is longing to have this time with his disciples because he wants to reveal something significant to them. This is the last conversation he's going to have prior to the sacrifice on Calvary. And he wants to uh, really communicate to them What is about to take place? The problem is that they weren't ready to receive it. And you pick it up in verse 24. Verse 24 says, Now there was also a what? A dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And this posed a problem because it created a barrier where Jesus couldn't get through to communicate the truth they wanted to communicate. This is the whole reason Jesus instituted what we call the ordinance of humility or the foot washing service. This is why he assumed the role of a servant because he was trying to, in the words of Desire of Ages, bring them down from the stilts of human pride so that they would be open and ready to receive the gospel. I want you to notice a statement from Desire of Ages, page 650. It says, speaking of the ordinance of humility, this ordinance is Christ's appointed preparation for the sacramental service, that is, the Lord's Supper. While pride, variance, and strife for supremacy are, share, are cherished, the heart, what? Cannot enter into fellowship with Christ. That's not just ne- then, that's now as well. In other words, the gospel of Christ can be the greatest and is the greatest thing in the world, but there are things that will bar us from receiving the benefit of it. Three of them listed here, pride, variance, and strife for supremacy. And that's where the disciples of Christ were. We are not prepared to receive the communion of his body and his blood. Therefore, it was that Jesus appointed the memorial of his humiliation to be first observed. That is, before the supper, we have the foot washing. It's designed to help us to come to a sense of our our need of Christ for salvation. And so it was here with these early disciples. There was a work of preparation that needed to be done. Now, I tried to figure in the Everlasting Gospel series a message that would go in its communion Sabbath, and and by nature of communion Sabbath, it's going to be a little abbreviated today, but there's a piece that I felt was essential that goes very well with this introduction from the Lord's Supper. Because in the same way that there were things that barred them from receiving the gospel, 
There are things that may rebar, bar us from receiving the gospel. The message today is entitled, Preparing the King's Highway, and it's taken from that reading that we had in Isaiah. Now, you're going to see that repeated in Luke chapter 3. If you go to Luke chapter 3 with me, in Luke chapter 3, we're introduced to a man named John the Baptist who had a work of preparation to do. Luke chapter 3 and verse 3. Speaking of John, the Bible says, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of what? Repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, what Isaiah is referring to, and now Luke is quoting from Isaiah, is the practice for the eastern kings when they would go somewhere of sending forerunners to smooth out the road ahead. And that included taking the, 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 the literally the road ahead, the, pa- the pavement, right? The, take the high places, they would knock them down. The, the low places in the road, they would fill in. If they needed to ford a river or build a bridge, they would do it. So when the king and his entourage would come through, the road was ready and smoothed out. Isaiah, in his prophecy of John the Baptist, uses that imagery to point to the work of John, only John's work was not a smoothing out of pavement, not a leveling out of pavement, but of people. And how did John level the people? You just read it. He preached repentance. What does repentance do? It points out our sin, and let me ask you, how many have sinned? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, once we all come to terms with that, human pride kind of dissipates, doesn't it? In other words, who's it? Hey, look, I'm more important than this this guy, right? I'm the higher and the lower. No, it's all smoothed out. It's all leveled out. All of a sudden, we're all on the same page. We're sinners in need of a Savior. And so Isaiah uses that language to point to the work of John the Baptist, and that was his work of repentance, That was what Jesus was trying to bring about as he went and washed the feet of his disciples, leveling, as it were, the playing field. And I want you to note that the message of repentance always accompanies the preaching of the gospel. We talked before about how the law and the gospel go together. That's what we're talking about. The law brings conviction, should bring us to repentance. They always go together. You may be familiar with this statement. I don't have it on the screen found in the book Steps to Christ, page 34. It says, even one wrong trait of character, one sinful desire persistently cherished, will eventually neutralize all the power of the gospel. What an amazing statement. As powerful as the gospel is, if we cherish sin and refuse to repent, it will neutralize all the power that the gospel has. And so the Lord sent John the Baptist to prepare the way with his message. I want you to go to Luke chapter 5 because we're in the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus builds on this, the idea of, of, of how the repentance, the message of repentance works in connection with the Gospel here in Luke chapter 5 verse 31. 
The Bible says, Jesus answered and said to them, those who are what? Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, most of us don't go call the doctor or go to the doctor when we feel good, unless you're a hypochondriac. And you might go all the time. But for most of us, we don't go to the doctor unless we feel sick. And Jesus makes this point. It's not those who are well who have need of a physician. And I kind of reverse the language there. But those who are sick. And then Jesus says this. I have not come to call who? The righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, was he excluding somebody there? Were there some righteous people that his message didn't apply to? No, because the Bible says in Romans chapter 3, there was no unrighteous, no, not one. Jesus knew that. Back when the rich young ruler came to him, he says, oh, good teacher. And Jesus said, there's only one who's good, and that is God. His point was this. Until a man sees his sinfulness, he has no need of Christ in his mind. We all have need of Christ. And so he says, I've come. Not just John the Baptist, I've come. Not to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. And I want you to go over to Luke chapter 7 with me. And I want you to see what happened to those who rejected the message of John. Luke chapter 7, and we're going to look at verse 29. The Bible says in Luke 7, 29, when all the people heard him. Let me back up to verse 28. Jesus is speaking here. He says, for I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been what? Having been baptized by him. I don't want you to miss this. When the tax collectors who were looked down on by society heard Jesus saying, John was the one that God sent to you, those who were baptized by John, which means they received his message, they said, yeah, we needed that message, and they justified God. It's an odd word to use in connection with God. We use it usually in connection with men. But they basically were declaring that what God did in sending John was right because they needed to be called to repentance. But not everybody felt the same way. Okay, you see that in the next verse. So in verse 29, it says, even the tax collectors, having, having been baptized with the baptism of John, justified God. Verse 30, but the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized of him. They refused to repent, and in doing so, they rejected what? The will of God for themselves. Folks, this is where Nicodemus was. And a lot of people miss this when Jesus was talking with Nicodemus and he said a man must be born again. Well, let me rephrase that. He didn't say a man must be born again. He said you must be born again. Nicodemus was all about that. And in fact, if you read this in Desire of Ages, Nicodemus was thrilled with John the Baptist's ministry. A lot of people needed it. But he didn't think he needed it. And when Jesus told him, then unless a man is born again, he can't see my kingdom. And Nicodemus perceived he was talking about himself, and he got a little riled up. And he said, what's a man going to do? Be born when he's old? And Jesus said, I'm telling you the truth, Nicodemus, unless a man is born of water and the Spirit. And Nicodemus knew and connected the dots. He was saying, you need John's baptism just like everybody else. You needed to go into the water just like everybody else. Well, that wasn't easy to hear. But there were those who did not receive the message of John, and, it, and listen carefully, it prepared them 
to reject Christ, which is what they did. Those who refuse to be brought to repentance will reject Christ. In fact, in the very act, they're rejecting Christ because Christ is the one, according to Acts chapter 5, that gives repentance. Now, in the connection with this, I want to come to the end of time because just as God sent John the Baptist with a message, there's a message that comes to the last day church, and we find it in the book of Revelation. Sometimes we call it the Laodicean message. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14. The Bible says here, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write. Who's speaking here? Okay, Jesus is speaking and he's dictating a letter. I want you to take dictation on this and I want you to send this letter out to the church of Laodicea, to the church, to the angel of the church, the messenger of the church of the Laodiceans. I want you to write this. These things says the amen, the what? Faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, which has to do with the fact that he is the creator where the same gospel author says that in John 1. So don't miss this. The faithful and true witness. Why would you address yourself as the faithful and true witness? Why would you want to tell people that you're a faithful and true witness? Because what you're about to say, they might not think is true. If you're tempted to doubt what I'm about to tell you, I just want you to know that my witness is true. That's what he's saying. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are what? Lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I what? As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Now, it's interesting. This word zealous comes from the same root word as the word hot he uses a little earlier. And I thought that was interesting. You want to be an on-fire Christian? You want to be hot? Repent. An on-fire Christian is a one who's willing to see and acknowledge what God says about him is true when he comes to point out sin. And in this case, he's telling, I know what your condition is. As many as I love, I rebuke and chase and be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and what? Knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. I'm going to stop there and I want to I get a visual of what's happening here. Okay? First of all, let me ask this. What is the problem with the Laodicean church? Is it that she's wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked? I heard a no. How many of you say no? That's not the problem. Not that it isn't a problem. It is a problem. It's not the problem. Why isn't it the problem? Because everybody has that problem. Right? Everybody's wretched, miserable, poor, but all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So for him to single that out, that's not the issue here. What is the issue with Laodicea? They don't realize it. Not only don't they realize it, while they're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, they think 
they're actually increased in goods. Now, I want you to understand what he's talking to. He's not talking to the heathen nations here. Jesus is talking to the church. He's not talking to the Jewish church. He's talking to the Christian church, a Christian church established by the apostles. And now he has to say, you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. You don't even know it. You think you're better off spiritually than you really are. And I'm faithful and true, and I'm here to tell you your true condition so you can be zealous and repent. Now, I want you to get a piece of this a lot of people overlook. After he addresses their condition, then what does he tell the church to do? Take of me, receive of me. Come and know. It says, buy from me. What's he doing? Selling. Okay? He's selling something. How's he selling it? Behold, I stand at the door and... How's he selling it? Ellen White refers to Jesus in this capacity as the heavenly merchant man, going from door to door with his wares. He's a door-to-door salesman selling something, and he's standing at the door knocking. Now, you may have heard this before. I've heard actually preachers bring this up, and they say, you know those pictures of Jesus at the door? You know there's only a handle on one side. It's on the inside. That's not true, folks. That's not true. Jesus doesn't not open the door because he can't. He doesn't barge in because he won't. It's not that there's not a handle on his side, but he's not. He's a salesman, and he's selling something that you need. But here's the thing. Who's going to open the door for him? Only those who believe they need what he's selling. Right? So this is the image that Jesus is giving. When he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and he's leaving up to you and me, he's saying, look, I'm here to sell you these things you need. You need the gold tried in the fire, this, this faith. And, and I'm not, I don't have time to break it down all the, 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 what, what this means, but he's basically offering his righteousness to the person behind the door. The problem with Laodicea is Laodicea says, hey, they got the no soliciting sign up. They're like, hey, we don't need it. We don't need it here. I think you want my neighbor's house. Are you following that? And so the challenge with Laodicea is not their sinfulness, but they think they're rich spiritually when they're poor spiritually. And when a person thinks they're rich spiritually... They can talk all day long about the gospel, but in the heart they don't sense any need of it. So we can sit here and that, look, the disciples, what we read about, they were sitting at the real Lord's Supper with the Lord right there. What did it mean to them? Nothing. Because they were striving as to who was going to be the greatest. And so Jesus comes to his last day church and to prepare the way, just as John did, he calls them to repentance. You know, something we have to understand is that sin blunts our moral perceptions. Okay? You know, we admit we're sinners. Now, I could ask if, if, if who's a sinner here, and all hands would go up. I mean, we already said all sin, so we all acknowledge that. But we have to understand that what that means is that my vision, my moral vision is not clear. That's why I need the Word of God, the written Word and the living Word. I don't see things clearly. And here's the tragedy of it all, is when the Lord comes to me and you and says, you're a sinner, and you say, I know. And he says, so let me show you what's wrong. You say, no, it isn't. I say, no, it isn't. That's not me. I think you got me mixed up with somebody else. 
purpose of the message to Laodicea was to prepare the church to receive Christ and be ready to see him when he comes again. I want you to notice a statement here from the book Early Writings, page 270. Now, I don't have time to get into the, the, the whole vision where Ellen White sees God's people, some shaken out, and then organized in a company, and she... As she saw some shaken out, she asked this question. I asked the meaning of the shaking I had seen and was shown that it would be caused by the straight testimony called forth by the counsel of the true witness to the Laodiceans. She says this counsel that we're reading about is going to shake some people right on out of the church. This will have its effect upon the heart of the receiver, this message of the true witness, and will lead him to exalt the standard and pour forth the straight truth. Some will not bear this straight testimony. They will rise up against it, and this is what will cause a shaking among God's people. Now, I've heard all kinds of things about the straight testimony and what it's supposed to be, but what are we reading about right here? What is the testimony? That you are not who you think you are spiritually. Isn't that what the true witness is saying? You are not the spiritual person you think you are. And that's not saying we're not spiritual. The Lord says that to me today. But you know, when the Lord comes to me, I have to say, Lord, yes, I'm a sinner, and I don't even know the extent of it. I can't be like, you know, it, that, that same mindset is what led Peter to deny the Lord. I know I'm a sinner, but I, know, I, I pretty much got a good idea where my weaknesses are. He was wrong. The Lord says, no, you don't even know it. Some are going to rise against it. When the true witness comes and says, you're not spiritually who you think you are. Yes, I am. Don't talk to me that way. Now, we don't say it that way, but I'll we'll flesh that out in a minute. Notice what it says. This testimony, this testimony must work deep repentance. All who truly receive it will obey it and be purified. Now, in another place, speaking of the Laodicean message, Testimonies, Volume 1, page 186, Ellen White said this. I saw that this message, the Laodicean message, would not accomplish its work in a few what? Short months. Look, you don't see your sins, repent of your sins, and get right with God overnight. There's a, there's a process where God reveals things and you wrestling with, with through that. It is designed, this message, to arouse the people of God to discover to them their backslidings. God knows our backslidings, but we need to know them. And to lead to what? Zealous repentance, that they may be favored with the presence of Jesus, and be fitted for the loud cry of the third angel. You know, we are on the edge of momentous times right here in this earth, but we've got to be fitted for it. We've got to be fitted for those times. The storm that's coming, we're not braced for. This message has got to do its work in our hearts. When she talks about favor with the presence of Jesus, time permitted, we would show that what she's especially referring to there is the outpouring of the latter rain, the presence of Jesus as he comes to us in latter rain power through the Holy Spirit and be fitted for the loud cry of the third angel. Now, I shared with you in our last message in this series that the gospel message hit a bright peak through the 1888 General Conference in the years following that. And a lot of people are unaware that the, that the Laodicean message was an integral part of the 1888 message. And in 1893, when A.T. Jones spoke at the general, he was a keynote speaker for the general conference session, he referred, in fact, several of our 
speakers at that GC were looking at the aftermath of the 1888 message and the controversy that was going on, and he referred back to the Laodicean message. And Elder Jones read this quote right here that we're just reading. And this is what he said after he finished reading it. Oops. Let me go to my notes here. I don't know if I have it on the screen. This is what he said. He read this quote and he says, that is where we are. While that message, the Laodicean message, is preparing us for the loud cry, God is sending angels everywhere to prepare people for the truth. And when we go forth from this conference with this message as it is now, the people will hear it. And I just want you to understand a little bit, now we're going to see a little bit more of this in this message, that in our history, God had brought his church to the point where I believe we are today. But we're here three generations later. And it wasn't God's design. Ellen White says in one place that we may have to remain in this world many more years because of our insubordination. You military folk know what that means. That means you refuse to follow the commanding officer. It wasn't God's design that we still be in this world. So the message came. It came in 1888 when God was bringing the message of righteousness by faith. The Laodicean message was given with an intention to do its work. And if A.T. Jones could say that is where we are then, I want to say how much more is that where we are now? I want to ask you, what do you think it means in the context of what we're looking at? What does it really mean to receive the message of the true witness? What does it look like to receive the message of the true witness to the Laodiceans on a practical level? I'm going to tell you that something interesting happens when I talk about sin and repentance. I always get from some corner or the other this response. You know, we talk about these things. I don't feel like I'm ever going to be good enough, Pastor. Some variation of that. And that betrays false thinking about the gospel. And I'm going to explain what that means. I don't think I'm ever going to be good enough. Now, you may have thought that or felt that, and I've felt that before, but let me just make something clear, and I've touched on this before. If you're feeling like you're never going to be good enough, I say amen to that. And if you say, I don't feel like I'm worthy, I say amen to that. And the sooner you come to terms with that, the better. The gospel's not about us being worthy. If I was worthy and good enough, I wouldn't need a savior. The problem with the Laodicean church is she thinks she's good enough. Now, I'm not talking about going around wallowing or or even uh, walking around saying, oh, I'm such a sinner, I'm such a sinner, I'm such a sinner all the time and repeating that. And that's not what it means to receive the message of the true witness. But we're not good enough. We're unworthy. That's why it's called grace. The term grace conveys that it's something we don't deserve. If I was good enough, I would deserve it. And there are many texts that bring that idea out. The sooner we realize that we're not good enough, the better, because then we will forever stop looking to ourselves, our performance, our goodness, And we'll start looking to Christ, our righteousness. And then we don't have to worry anymore. I mean, that's the idea. I want you to notice this statement from Steps to Christ. And and in fact, I think I heard it in our Sabbath school class this morning. The closer you come to Jesus, the what? Closer you come to Jesus, the more faulty you will appear in your own eyes. That sounds odd, right? Why? Notice. For your vision will be clearer and your imperfections will be seen in broad and distinct contrast 
to his perfect nature. And I've given the example before. I don't play basketball well at all. I just don't. Okay, this white guy can't jump. And what happens is, if I get out and I try to play basketball, let's say I have a day where I feel like I'm having a pretty good day. There are days when I can hit some hoops, and I'm like, hey, I'm doing pretty good. Until somebody who can, who can play even so-so shows up, and then all of a sudden, what happens? Now, all of a sudden, I'm having a terrible day. I was having a great day until somebody who knew how to play showed up. Have you ever had that kind of thing happen? By comparison, right? The point that's being made here is, if I'm coming closer to Jesus, let me ask you a question. How worthy do you think a person feels when they're standing right next to Jesus? He's worthy, but I'm not worthy when I see his goodness. I can't help but see my badness. And that's what this statement is bringing out. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a direct consequence of being in the presence of Jesus that we'll see our own imperfections. Now she goes on to make this point. This, seeing your sinfulness, and don't miss this. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. When you see your sins, what are you tempted to think? How many of you think when you start to feel like you're really sinful, you think, well, the devil's just, it's the devil telling me I'm, I'm sinful. Now, let me tell you something. The devil doesn't want you to know you're sinful. Because then you go to Jesus. I'm not going to say the devil. Let me put it this way. The Lord helps us to see our sinfulness. The devil doesn't want us to see it because if we did, we'd go to Jesus. Now, once the Lord shows it to us and we see we're sinful, then the devil may come in and try to say, you're so sinful you can't go to Jesus. But notice this. When we see our sinfulness, our unlikeness to Christ, this is evidence that Satan's delusions have lost their power. And that the vivifying or life-giving influence of the Spirit of God is arousing you. If you see your sinfulness, that means the Spirit of God is working on you to save you. Praise the Lord. It goes on to say, no deep-seated love for Jesus can dwell in the heart that does not realize its own sinfulness. Wow. If we do not see our own moral deformity, it is what? What kind of evidence is it? It's unmistakable evidence that we have not had a view of the beauty and excellence of Christ. It's a natural result of seeing Jesus to see our unlikeness to Jesus. Now, some people hear that and they say, oh, that is so hard. That is so, that's depressing. And when Elder Jones was preaching the Laodicean message in 1893, he had people come to him. They said, I don't get it. You're talking about we're supposed to be rejoicing because we see our sinfulness? In fact, Jones had quoted, I'm trying to remember exactly the statement Ellen White made. It's another statement where she said, are you in Christ? Not unless you see yourself as defiled something-something sinners. I forget the exact wording of it. And so people were asking him, and I have it right here. This is what Jones said. He says, some have said they cannot see how a man can acknowledge himself to be wretched and miserable, poor and blind and naked, and, not, and, and don't know it, and at the same time be rejoicing in the Lord. Maybe you're thinking the same thing. He responds, well, I would like to know how anyone else can. I would like to know how a man is going to rejoice in the Lord when he thinks he's all right himself. You see, the Laodicean, he's like, hey, I'm enriched, increasing, good. You don't need Jesus. It's when you have nothing that you look to Christ and he becomes everything. And that's the point that he's making here. But when a man knows 
that he is what the Lord says he is, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, and acknowledges that, and then finds that the Lord is so good that he will take him just as he is and fit him to stand in the presence of God through all eternity, then that man has something to rejoice for. Brethren, the Lord does not save us because we are so good, but because he is so good. Do not forget that. He does not save us nor bless us in the work of God at all because we are so good, but because he is good and we are bad. And the blessedness of it is that he will bless us so much when we are so bad. And the rejoicing of the whole thing is that he saves us and makes us to reflect his own image as bad as we are. That is where the rejoicing comes in. And so one of my favorite articles by Elder Jones comes from a, a Present Truth edition, and I want to share it with you. So he made, in, you're kind of tagging on this whole idea of the closer we come to Christ, the more faulty we'll appear in our own eyes and that kind of thing, and rejoicing in our sinfulness. What did Paul say? I'll boast in my infirmities. This is what Jones says in this Present Truth article. He says, do not be discouraged at the sight of sinfulness in the flesh. When you see sinfulness in yourself, he says, don't be discouraged. It is only in the light of the Spirit of God and by the discernment of the mind of Christ that you can see so much sinfulness in your flesh. Right? You wouldn't see it if it wasn't for the Spirit of God. Sin blunts our moral perceptions. We can't see sinfulness unless the Spirit of God shows us. It's the Spirit of God, the Bible says, John 16, 8, who brings us conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. So he says, it's only by the discernment of the mind of Christ that you see so much of the sinfulness in your flesh. And the more sinfulness you see in your flesh, the more of the Spirit of God you certainly have. Amen. This is a sure test. When, then when you see sinfulness abundant in you, thank the Lord that you have so much of the Spirit of God that you can see so much of the sinfulness. You ever think of it that way? Hmm. And know of a surety that when sinfulness abounds, grace much more abounds in order that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. And so when the true witness comes to us and shows us our sinfulness, it's because he's there ready to save. It's because he has the gold tried in the fire. He has the white raiment. He has the eye salve that he's willing to give us or sell us, and we won't go into the details of that right now today. Folks, I want you to understand this. Some, I've got, I know Christians who think that if, if, it's, if it's the gospel, you're always going to feel good about it. I don't know how many of you have ever read the account in the Spirit of Prophecy volumes. I don't think it's in uh, Patriarchs and Prophets as clearly, clearly as the Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 1, with Jacob wrestling with the angel. And Ellen White says in that passage when Jacob was wrestling with Christ, that Christ himself would bring Jacob's sins up to his mind. Not just the devil. Christ would bring the sins to Jacob's mind. And then she said he appeared in the vision of me to be turning to try to get away. So Jacob's trying to grab him and he wants to get away from him. And here's Christ putting the sins, saying, but you've done this and this and this and trying to get away. And all Jacob had was the promises of God. All he had was, but Lord, you promised. But Lord, you promised. There was no feeling that would tell him otherwise. God's people in these last days have to realize that 
An abundant Christian experience does not come from how we feel, but who we believe in. There could be times when you feel down, but you don't have to be down. Because Christ never lives to make intercession. So if you feel like you're not good enough, you're not. Praise God that Jesus is. And I want to tell you something. For some, for some, the I don't feel worthy is a carnal cop-out. It's a carnal cop-out. In other words, some people say, I, I feel, for example, you have the person who says, I hate myself, I'm so ugly. Have you ever heard that? I hate myself, I'm so ugly. If you hated yourself, you'd be glad you were ugly. Think about it. Right? So we'll say sometimes, oh, well, you know, I feel so unworthy. But oftentimes what we're doing is we're saying, stop telling me I need to change. Ellen White says in the book Christ Object Lessons, the lips may express a poverty of soul that the heart does not acknowledge. I've had people come and say, I just feel like I'm not worthy enough. And that same person then will be found fighting against the will of God in every particular. Well, you, all, uh, you must feel worthy enough to fight with God and argue with him. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, God comes and convicts, oh, I feel like I'm so unworthy. And God says, well, look, go and do this. And you say, I'm not going to do that. I don't feel like that applies to me, or I don't think I need to. And when we begin, listen, folks, any person who truly feels unworthy will be humble and teachable. Not fighting against God's, reveal, uh, God's revealed will at every step of the way. When you're fighting God's revealed will, it's not because you feel unworthy. It's because you feel worthy enough to contend with God. Don't fool yourself. This is why this true witness has to come and talk to us. Because we deceive ourselves sometimes about our true condition. So Jesus said, be zealous and repent. Where are we today, saints? Where are we today? As the message comes to us today. It says, I stand at the door and knock. It says, be zealous and repent. The Lord is knocking. Will we open the door? It was W.W. Prescott, William Prescott, who at that same general conference session, there's a lot happening at that. I don't have time to get into the details, but Talking about the Laodicean message, he too comments on it. And this is what he told the people, and it, it resonated with me as I read it and I was preparing for this sermon. Now listen, he's talking at the, at the general conference session to mostly ministers who are coming to religious meetings, morning, noon, and night. I mean, it's not like what we do throughout the week. He's going to, you're going to religious meetings all day, and yet this is what he says. Now to my mind, it does not mean that we can come here and go on as usual, get up in the morning after breakfast, have a social chat, come to this service and listen to it, talk and visit, come down at 2.30 and hear some more, and they're hearing what they're hearing are sermons and spiritual presentations. Come down at 2.30 and hear some more, and at 7 o'clock, come and hear some more, and come back and do the same thing again the next day. I tell you, that will not bring it. It will not do it. His context was receiving the Holy Spirit. So this isn't going to cut it. We can't keep going on the same way. God is sending a special call to his people at this time. It is be zealous and repent. Now that is the simple situation that faces you and me tonight. The question is, what are we to do about it? What are you and I going to do about it right here now at this conference? That is the practical question, and the whole purpose of this instruction is to bring us face to face with that question. Again, I say, what are we going to do about it. Brothers and sisters, what are we going to do today about the call of the faithful and true witness to us? 
We have the table prepared before us. Are we in our hearts striving for the supremacy like the disciples of Christ? Then this means nothing. Those words were spoken three generations ago, and this church is still here. We should have passed through heaven's gates by now. And saints, you know as well as I do that sometimes you'd never know that God's given us a shred of counsel on how to live as Christians. We watch and listen to what the world watches and listens to. We laugh at the same jokes, we read the same classics and bestsellers, we eat the same food at the same restaurants, we pursue relationships just like the world does and have the same divorce rates. What are we going to do about it? I can't believe the fireworks across the street when we try to change one thing from the way we've always done it. And I think the faithful and true witness is coming to us and appealing to us, and I don't think we get, we can talk about the gospel all day long, and it means zero until we humble our hearts before the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, all that thou hast said about me is true. I'm wretched, and I'm miserable, and I'm poor and blind and naked, and I don't even know it. Lord, I need you so much. I need to be like you. I need to think like you. I need you to fill me. In early writings 108, Ellen White says, many of these professed Christians dress, talk, and act like the world and the only thing by which they may be known is their profession. People can't look at you and tell you you're a follower of Christ unless you say you're a follower of Christ. It is evident that many who bear the name of Adventists study more to decorate their bodies and appear well in the eyes of the world than they do to learn from the word of God how they may be approved of him. How long, saints, is it going to be? Is it going to be another generation? Are we ready to listen and heed the counsel of the true witness? I'm going to tell you, even today, and this exasperates me, so you can agree or disagree. We got communion Sabbath, and I already hear lamenting because it's communion Sabbath, and we're going to have to be in church a long time today. Guess what? It's still going to be Sabbath when we're done. And I think to myself, we're talking about the Lord coming soon. And in the, in, the, in the whole scheme of things, let's say we have to sit here an extra 15 whole minutes in church. What does that say about where we are? Jeremiah chapter 8, verses, uh, 7, verses 8 through 11, the Lord spoke to his people in Jeremiah's day. said, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name? In other words, will you live like the world and then come in here like, hey, yeah, we're here, and say we are delivered to do all these abominations? Right? Hey, Jesus saves us. I live like the world, but Jesus saves us. Jesus does save us. Saves those who are willing to heed the counsel of the true witness. God says, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. And he might well say to us today, do we live like the world around us? And then come in here and sit in his house, called by his name, and sit at this supper, representing the broken body of Christ and the blood shed on the cross as if it was a common thing. 
the words of Jesus to you and to me. And folks, I'm speaking to me as much as to you, is be zealous and repent. We need the Lord Jesus to draw us closer to Him and pull us further from the world around us. We need our hearts and our minds brought in harmony with His will. And for each one sitting in here today, the Spirit of God is pointing out some place where you have allowed yourself to become distant from Jesus. What are you going to do as He stands and knocks? Are you going to say, Lord, I'm everything you say and more. I'm going to open that door and I want your gold and I want the ISAB and I want the white raiment. This is where in the communion service we separate for the foot washing service. Now, one of the purposes of that service is to make sure all things are right with our fellow man. But a more important part of that service is to come to terms with the counsel of the true witness to us where we stand spiritually and accept the words of Christ. You're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind and naked, you don't even realize it. And when we come to terms with that and accept that, in accepting his counsel, we accept him. And then we have the fullness of the Godhead in Christ. And then we come to this supper. We can have the assurance of having Christ in place of our wretchedness and our miserableness and our poorness and our blindness and our nakedness. But saints, I want to appeal to you today. Be in earnest with the Lord. This is no time to pretend about Christianity. This is not an act like it was in Christ's day. The Pharisees went as actors in a play. Let it not be so with God's people. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dismiss for the, for the uh, ordinance of humility, the foot washing service. I need somebody to help me out again. We have uh, uh, chairs lined in the hallway here. Who's over here? The men are over here. What about in the something else room? Okay, the men over there as well, on this side of the church for the foot washing service. And then over here, Junior's room in this hallway, the women, and then downstairs for the families. Is that right? Brothers and sisters, let's make this service not just a routine and a formal thing today. Let's be real with God. And nobody can do that for you but you. And you don't have to have a, an hour-long personal prayer. Just breathe up a prayer and say, Lord Jesus, I accept your counsel the true witness. Be to me my righteousness and my sanctification and my redemption. Will you do that today? Will you do that today? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, oh, Father. Father, we, we are so thankful for the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. So thankful, Father. But far too often, and I can speak for myself, I'm like that person who feels like he's well and isn't looking for a physician. All too often like that Laodicean who doesn't realize that I'm wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Lord, today as we meditate upon the words of Scripture, as we listen to your counsel to us, as we recognize that this work of repentance is not something that even is going to happen in a few short months, but we have to have a rediscovering of who Jesus is to us. Lord, may your spirit guide us step by step. For we want not only to know Jesus, but we want to possess his righteousness.
We ask today, Father, whatever it takes, that you would make the Lord Jesus to be my righteousness. And I say that for each one here today. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.